0: Let's pray um, just before we look at it together. Our Father God, thank you for uh, stories like this showing us the encounters that Jesus had with ordinary, normal people. And as we look at it this morning, please would you teach us what it means to be forgiven? Would you teach us what it means to love you? Please would you work those things in us. In Jesus' name, amen. But if you're, you're not a Christian um, and you're here this morning, perhaps, I don't know, maybe you've been dragged along by someone, or you're looking into Christian things and still not sure about who Jesus is, I wonder whether you can comprehend the idea of loving Jesus. You love Jesus, somebody who is not here physically present with us. I don't even if you can kind of think about how, how one might do that. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian here, we love Jesus. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. But, but sometimes our love can grow dim, can't it? Our love, can, um, our love doesn't burn so, so bright, so hotly. We can lose some of that passion. How is it that we can rekindle that love for Jesus? Well, this morning is going to show us uh, these things so you, earlier in chapter 7 Jesus has confirmed that yes he is the Christ he is the one that God had promised to send thousands hundreds and uh, thousands of hundreds and thousands of years beforehand he was going to send this rescuing king and Jesus says here I am you're not waiting for another one and we started to be introduced to two responses to him the two groups so we had the, the people and uh, tax collectors as a special uh, category, and those are the kind of the lowest in society. They, they responded to Jesus. They approved of him. They, um, they trusted in him. And then you also had the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and they rejected him because, well, they didn't want him. They didn't like him. And today what we see is those two responses but on an individual basis. And it's really going going to be really helpful for us because we're seeing those two individuals engage and relate to Jesus because it shows us how we as individuals now can engage and relate with Jesus too. So here's the scene. Uh, there's a, a Pharisee, one of these religious leaders, he's, his name is Simon. And he invites Jesus round to his house for a meal. I don't know why he does that. Uh, maybe he's curious. Maybe he's hoping to kind of score some religious brownie points, you know, have the, the kind of the teacher of the day round to my house. Maybe he's out to trap Jesus like the Pharisees had already done. We, we, we don't know for whatever reason, he invites Jesus and Jesus comes along. And here we meet the, the final character. We don't know her name. We simply know her reputation. You see it in verse 37 at the beginning. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she, rele- uh, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she came to him. So we don't know her name. All we know is her reputation. Three times, in fact, we are told she is a sinner. Luke mentions it there as a narrator. Simon the Pharisee mentions it. And indeed, Jesus mentions it. Now, we don't know what her particular sin or sins that she um, had or she did were. All that we know is that she's notorious. She's known for being a sinner. And we might be suspicious and we might be a bit concerned about her. But Luke has actually already prepared us for this. Just a few verses earlier in verse 34, Jesus was mocked using the term, he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They mocked him for that. But Luke has prepared us. So when we see a sinner coming, actually we know there's hope. So going in, we have hope for her. And that is confirmed when we see our first point, we see the extravagant love that this lady has. Extravagant love. So in those days, um, the kind of meals like this, uh, don't you see too clearly, but um, rather than kind of sitting upright at, 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 on chairs at tables, more kind of reclined, they reclined, leaning inwards. Uh, to, towards where the food was. And I'm told that in those days, again, these meals wouldn't necessarily have been a kind of private affair. Nowadays, you imagine someone, come, a stranger knocking the door, coming in, we wouldn't let them in, would you? But, but in those days, it's kind of semi-public, so people could have come along at these kind of meals and just sat around the outsides and, and listened in, perhaps, to conversations. But even so, what happens next would have taken enormous courage from this woman. Have it done again at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointments. There she is. Okay, so they're all, there they all are, kind of heads inwards towards the table, feet outwards. And she steps up, perhaps sits, perhaps kneels, but it's down by Jesus' feet and she's weeping great tears. And then shockingly, in the, for, in the, particularly in those days, she, she lets her hair down and starts wiping um, those, um, those tears dry i say in those days, that would have been a shocking thing for a woman to do, to to reveal her hair in public like that. It wasn't done. And even more remarkably, she starts kissing Jesus' feet. Again, in those days, uh, days with no kind of paved roads and uh, no cars, so animals pulling trucks along muddy tracks, roads have been horrendous, walking around in bare feet or in sandals, open sandals. Actually, the only people who went near feet were were, were slaves. They meant to kind of wash them as they came in. I mean, here she is kissing his feet. It's a remarkable display of devotion, remarkable display of humility. It's so heartfelt, isn't it? Huge tears, wiping with her hair, I and mean, kissing his feet. It gets more extravagant. You see, she's brought with her this this flask. Um, of ointments might look something like this that I don't really know but kind of stopper in the top Uh, it was possibly an heirloom so this is the kind of thing that that would have been passed down from uh, from generation to generation it is likely the most expensive thing that she owns and she takes this this uh, jug this flask of, of oil this perfume whatever it might have been and she anoints Jesus feet with it Again, in those days, if you're going to anoint someone with oil, it would go over the head. Here again, this most precious thing she owns, and she just pours it over his feet. It's hard, again, to overstate the courage that it would have required for her to enter this occasion. A notorious known sinner coming up to Jesus, this, this known holy man. And to do this before before him. But such is her her love for Jesus that she she can't help but approach him. Fearful faith. It truly is extravagant love. Tears of, of joy, as we'll see, tears of joy pouring out of her eyes. Her dignity is nothing compared to her love for Jesus. And even Jesus' feet are worthy of the most precious thing she has—extravagant love. Now we turn our attention to the host, a second character. So we have the sinful woman showing extravagant love, and now we see Simon with self-righteous pride. So the the contrast between the two couldn't really be greater. Again, we're not sure, i said this, why he invited Jesus, but even if he is genuinely interested and intrigued by Jesus, his response to to what this woman does shows that he is just a typical Pharisee. And we get an insight, interesting, into his, his thinking. So verse 39, when the Pharisee, that's Simon, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. So this is helpful for us. We're getting an insight into the mind of a Pharisee. We see the Pharisees quite often. They're quite key characters through the gospel, these religious leaders. But here we're seeing what's going on in his mind. And his thinking goes like this. Well, he's drawn his conclusion. He knows that she is a sinner. She is a sinner. And in drawing that conclusion, he's drawing a distinction with himself. He's putting himself in one category and her in another. She is a sinner, unlike me. You see, the Pharisees were typified by their self-righteousness. Through Luke's gospel, and and particularly in chapter 18, we're going to see another great example of an individual um, uh, Pharisee who who boasts the fact that they're not like everybody else, that they perform all of God's rules and laws perfectly, even down to the, the, the minutest detail. They prided themselves on the fact that they did everything necessary for themselves to be righteous, that is, to be right before God. And here Simon says, that is me, I am, self. I am righteous self because of what I've done. And here is this woman, she is a sinner. And therefore, if she's a sinner and I'm righteous, well, for him and for the other Pharisees, separationism is the name of the game. Keep them separate. Sinners should be kept at arm's length. They definitely shouldn't be welcomed and accepted and embraced and allowed to do what this woman's doing. Because for him, well, if that was to happen, well, her sinfulness could kind of rub off on you, on your, your righteousness and your holiness. No chance. Jesus, what are you doing having this, this woman do that to you? Why are you not rebuking her? Why are you not kicking her out? See, again, and therefore in his mind... Particularly important figures like the prophets, particular holy people, well, they would have nothing to do with sinners. And so by what he's saying there in verse 39, well, since Jesus did have something to do with this sinner, well, he couldn't possibly be a prophet. He'd be possibly a prophet if he embraces people like that. You see, Simon had this disdain for this woman. The known notorious sinner, and since Jesus didn't have that disdain for her, Simon disdained Jesus. He looked down on him too. Jesus gives a a little illustration that we'll um, we'll look at in a few moments, but let's just just look on and see how Jesus, Jesus views the situation. See how he compares the two responses of these people. So come down to verse 44. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointments. See again in, in those days, depending on who the guest was, it would depend on, on how you would greet them and, and what you would do for them. Amy and I, we have a similar similar situation at home. You know how important visitors to our house by how much of the stuff that appears on the table can't go in the dishwasher. Right? So if you come around for lunch and there's anything on the table that can't go in the dishwasher, you're a very important person. Okay? But Simon, he has not even shown the most basic courtesy. He has not given Jesus a bowl of water to wash his feet. He has not kissed him in greeting. He's not greeted him properly, the handshake I guess we do today. He's not anointed his head with oil. He's done none of those things compared to the woman who has washed, his feet, washed Jesus' feet with her tears and hair, who has not stopped kissing Jesus' feet, who has anointed his feet. See, Simon hasn't shown this basic courtesy, let alone extravagant love. His self-righteousness, he, he put himself above the woman and he put himself above Jesus. What the contrast between the two what makes the difference? What made the woman show this great extravagant love? And what meant that Simon the Pharisee had this self-righteous pride? Well, here the, the difference maker was forgiveness. That's what made the difference. Forgiveness. They flick back up to, to verse 41 and 42. Jesus tells this, this little story, this little illustration. Very simple. A certain moneylender had two debtors. Oh, sorry, I should just jump back, ju- back a step. Um, in, in verse 40, Jesus um, uh, said, asked Simon, Let's say, can, I t- can I tell you something? And what is ironic is the, f- the fact that um, Simon kind of said, oh, you can't possibly be a prophet if you would have anything to do with him. And yet at the same time, Jesus is reading his mind. That's exactly what he's thinking. Anyway, so Jesus said, look, let me, let me tell you something. Simon says, yes, go for it. Verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So that is, um, roughly speaking, a month and a half's wages to kind of uh, a year and a half's wages. So two, two months so it's about um, a year and a half. It's a huge difference in... Yeah, money. Verse 42. When they could not pay, he counselled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Go forwards. And credit to Simon. He answers. Verse 43. Simon answered, the one I suppose. Maybe he's a bit begrudging. The one, I suppose, for whom he counselled the larger debt. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have judged Rightly. It's very simple, and to kind of put it in graph speak, it looks a bit like this. Well, the the, the greater the cancelled debt, well, the the more the love grows. Those two things go is pretty 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 makes, makes sense, doesn't it? it? So somebody who's had a much greater debt forgiven, well, their love is going to be much greater than the, the smaller one. And then if we're to transfer that into the point that Jesus is making, he's saying this. The greater the awareness of the forgiveness, the greater the love the person is going to have. And so verse 47. Jesus concludes, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much and he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, it is possible from verse 47, if you just read that verse by itself, you could kind of come away with the impression, well, the fact that she loved Jesus so much meant that she was forgiven. But actually, that, that word forgiven, the technical thing is... Sorry, I'm wandering away from the, mic, the, the text, That word for forgiven is in the present tense. Uh, sorry, perfect tense, which means that it's a present state arising from something that happened in the past. So she had been forgiven and she is still forgiven. And the whole thrust of this passage, the whole point of that illustration is that the forgiveness comes first and then the love. And for this woman, everyone knew the woman's sins. Everyone knew it, she was notorious. And in fact, Jesus, as one who knows the minds, He knows the full extent of those sins, and yet he doesn't spurn her. Three times, as I've said, we're told that she is a sinner. Three times we're told that she is forgiven. And so those two things go together. She is a sinner, but she is a forgiven sinner, which is why she loves extravagantly. But Simon did kind of have something going right in his thinking in verse 39. He had something right about God, but he, he applied it wrongly. So he, he did he knew rightly that God is a holy God. He knew that God does indeed hate sin, that he is offended by it. But he thought that that meant that god would want nothing to do with sinners and therefore he shouldn't either simon had no thought that might that god might forgive and welcome sinners but he did in a sense identify that right problem god holy god and sinners don't in, don't go together so how is it that a holy god could forgive and welcome sinners. Well far, far beyond Simon's perception, far even beyond the woman's perception. This grace is possible because Jesus would pay that debt. You notice in the, the little illustration the two people had the debt that they could not pay. And the fact is every single human being that's ever lived, very much including myself, is a sinner as that heart attitude that lives in rebellion against God is worked out in so many different ways. And as Will said before our confession, it's, it's like a debt that adds up and adds up and adds up that we simply can't pay. The wonderful thing is we don't have to pay. Because Jesus paid that debt perfectly. As he died on the cross, all those sins of of his people were transferred on to him and he paid that debt. Simon had had no space for grace. Wonderfully, we know that is how we can be forgiven. So Simon, he, he goes wrong about God, but he's also wrong about himself, isn't he? In his self-righteousness, he's put himself in this category apart from the woman. He, she's a sinner, I'm not. He was not. He, he, he wouldn't have anything to do with her, and therefore, why on earth would God? He's so blinded by his self-righteousness that he can't see his own sin. But wonderfully... This story, again, um, ends in, well, heads towards a conclusion in verse 48. As Jesus explains all these things, and then in verse 48, he, he turns to the women and says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine how her heart must have leapt when all that she had trusted was confirmed to be true? And again, Simon was, was worried about um, Jesus being a prophet. But the fact that Jesus says he can forgive sins actually shows that he is so much more. And so, verse 49, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Only God can do that. And here Jesus is able So here we have these many contrasts, don't we, between these two people. One, you have this high social position. The other is an outcast because she's this notorious sinner. One is the host. The other is an uninvited guest. One is angry. The other is overcome with joy and love. One is still evaluating Jesus. The other has decided to to trust him. And the fundamental difference between the two is that only one believed that God has grace for sinners. Simon had no room for grace. So for him, it was unavailable to sinners and unnecessary for himself. Let me draw some implications for us coming from this. Number one, know yourself. Know yourself. As we said, that's the problem for Simon, wasn't it? His his self-righteousness blinded himself uh, from his own sins. And so that sins were these things that other people did. But again, know yourself. And if you're new to Christian things, you might not like hearing this, that, that all people are sinners. I say, I hope I'm very much in that category too. Absolutely everyone who's ever lived, the Bible says... Know yourself. Actually, if we're honest about things, we know that we fail to live up to our own standards. And if we're failing to live up to our own, we can be sure we're failing to live up to God's. And there is this debt that we could never pay by ourselves. But knowing that is the first step to receiving forgiveness. Those who don't know that will never receive the forgiveness because they won't know to look. But equally, as Christians, know yourself. How is it that we will love Jesus more? Well, it's when we have that awareness of our own sin more. We might think it's a bit morbid, a bit depressing to to have this focus on our own sins. But actually, it is a focus on those sins in a right sense, which is the pathway to knowing our great forgiveness. And therefore, loving him more. That's why a great thing to do as part of your prayer times each and every day is, is to confess your sins. Just to spend a few moments thinking back, acknowledging those ways that you've gone wrong. Confessing them to God. Because again, that awareness again helps us to understand and appreciate that forgiveness even more. So firstly, know yourself. Secondly, then know your forgiveness. Know your forgiveness. Again, I said, um, it wasn't it so wonderful that Jesus turned to the lady in verse 48 and said, Your sins are forgiven? And then if you look at verse 50, he, he adds it, uh, and he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. For the lady there, and then it was wonderful to Jesus to affirm what she was trusting in was true, that she was forgiven, that she had peace. With God. and in a sense, we we don't have that kind of Jesus, and once have got Jesus here to say that to us, and yet at the same time, we have that same declaration. In one John one nine, where God says, "If you confess your," where John says, "If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins." We have that same declaration because Jesus has paid that debt. We know that if we are trusting in him, that forgiveness is just as assured. And again, in verse 50, that results in peace. Peace, they're talking about peace with God. Forgiveness leading to that restored relationship with him. So know yourself, know your forgiveness. And thirdly, then love Jesus extravagantly. When we put those two things together, that greater awareness of our sin, and therefore a greater awareness of our forgiveness, well, that leads to this extravagant love. If I was to ask you the the, the question, how is your heart's hospitality to Jesus at the moment? What kind of welcome is he getting? Is he getting that pharisaical welcome? Or is he getting the welcome of that sinner, that sinful woman? And hold those two things together you can't generate this love out of nowhere it comes from this awareness of self and awareness of forgiveness let's show that extravagant love to him perhaps one way we could do that is even as we sing our final song